Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast, where Dr. Joel Schwartz and I, Travis, discuss the intersection of faith and philosophy. We are part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Please visit our site at tacticalfaith.com, check out our blog, our other podcasts, and if you live in Alabama or nearby, we would love to see you at one of our events. If you'd like to help support our ministry, please pray for us, share us with your friends, and consider supporting us financially by going to the Donate tab on our page. Thank you for joining us. I am Travis. I'm Joel. We're trying to follow up on the previous podcast, which was a little bit long and maybe got a little bit into the weeds, uh, with Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, one of the most important books of the last century, uh, heavily uh, referenced and, uh, well, uh, groundbreaking in a lot of ways, uh, particularly in ways that it kind of follows up and adds to what we, uh, the podcast on Quine. And one of the main ideas that Kuhn tries to get across is that revolution that shifts in science in science uh these scientific revolutions are actually paradigm shifts and that word's a little bit of a tricky word but it's sort of like the way a community functions and thinks about problems and the, the things that they value they're actually paradigm shifts and so so science is not merely a cumulative growth of facts and knowledge but it's sort of like a a, a radical shift takes place, a paradigm gets settled, and then there's a bunch of people figuring out puzzles within the paradigm, puzzles that are established by the paradigm, by the community as uh, solvable problems, solvable puzzles that have a probable solution. Uh, and most scientists do that. That's called normal science. They go about figuring out the puzzles. But then every once in a while, a host of anomalies grows up and becomes eventually overwhelming and then there's a clash of paradigms as the paradigm comes to this crisis mode. New crises are considered. Um, uh, sorry, new, new paradigms are considered. They're balanced out, and eventually one of them wins out and becomes the uh, the reigning paradigm. Some of the, some of what we tried to finish up with last time was what does this what does this matter? What does it have to do with Christianity? What does it have to do? with apologetics uh, in the broad sense. That is, what does it have to do? When Christians would hear about this, what what do we think, what are the issues we're thinking about? How does this relate to the way that we interact with a world uh, that's sort of enamored with science uh, in some ways, uh, quite enamored with science, uh, particularly a lot of atheists who, are, who, who hold science as sort of the end-all, be-all as sources of knowledge. And if we're talking about that, um, we're talking broadly, broadly speaking, about apologetics. Uh, so, Joel, what are some, maybe, what are some ways that we should be thinking about apologetics um, that might help guide us into how Kuhn can apply uh, to the way that Christians interact with the world or engage a culture that's kind of drunk on science in a lot of ways. That's a great question. Um, I. Uh... I want to be careful to not be too critical, um, but I know that some approaches to apologetics try to almost treat apologetics like science thinks it treats itself. So it's got the, the world of facts and you just got to get more facts to those people. And if they get more facts, then they're going to see this is how the, then they're, they're going to understand this is how the world is and they're going to be converted and everything's going to be wonderful. Um, and, and so it's all about getting, making the arguments for the facts so that the facts, 
become things that people add to their set of beliefs and um and that's that's the end goal but i i'm not sure i i think in the same way that kuhn pushes back on that view of science i'd like to push back on that view of apologetics if i'm not being uh too uh making too big of a stretch by connecting uh kuhn and apologetics in that way and i think if we understand what Kuhn is saying, that Kuhn is saying, that, no, the the way it works is is the the things we value, the questions we ask, the questions we want answered, um, you know, and 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 all those kinds of things that that drives how we understand the world. Similarly, with apologetics, it's not about getting people to add facts to their set of facts; it's about getting them to see the world in a different way. Right. This is, this is, I think, a lot of the debate about apologetic method kind of surrounds this sort of issue. So, um, and, I've, and I've heard people talk, people who are involved in philosophy and apologetics and so forth. Uh, one of the things that's brought up sometimes is, and in fact, I've mentioned this sometimes, is God, the existence of God is, a, is not another fact that's simply added to a shared set of beliefs that we have. In many ways, the Christian inhabits a different world than the non-Christian. Or you might say the Christian should be inhabiting a different world. And we don't mean by that the Christians are from Mars and non-Christians are from Venus or something like that. What we mean is that, and we're not obviously talking about a physical different world, even though that's sort of a complicated discussion that we, that we could have. But the world, at the very least, we, we, can, we can go with this, the world really appears, should appear different to a believer than to a non-believer because God is not simply, you don't simply have a shared world and then you add God to it. If God, if the God of scripture is real, the whole world is different than, than, than the world of the unbeliever. It, uh, so apologetics is apologetics. And this is what we're talking about is apologetics an attempt to, to build upon the set of the shared beliefs that we have and add new facts or is it an attempt to try to get someone to see a different world? And no matter how you answer that question, you're going to run into some problems, right? There's going to be some pushback because if we don't have any shared beliefs with unbelievers, because we live in an entirely different world, then apologetics is a fruitless endeavor, right? We have, we have no common ground on which we stand. Well, let me push back on that. Cause I, I think there's a, there's an element of, of we see the world differently, but it's only a different world because for the Christian, there's more contributing to what um, constructs the way we see the world rather than it's like we discount. It's not because we don't discount science. We don't discount all the things that the unbeliever uh, believes or the way that all their values, we, you know, in fact, I think we can often find some, some shared ground, but it's still a different world because at the end of the day, it's a world that, that God is, is a part of. And also the, the things we value are going to uh, very likely be different, shaping the way that we see, see things differently. Let's, let's, let's kind of, let's kind of pause there for a moment and let's talk about the word world. And talk about what this means, right? And when when philosophers talk about world, we're not talking about Earth. Uh, coming from the Greek cosmos, 
which from which we get our word cosmos, and it just means kind of all things that are. And in many ways, when we when philosophers talk about the world, they're even including God in that, right? So the world right. is not even just the universe. The world means all things. All that, that there are, is. All that there is. All the facts that are the case. Right? <laughs> well, maybe not. So um, what is the world? Well, we've suddenly jumped into a hornet's nest when we're talking about what the world is. Uh, because it seems like most people would say, would want to say something like this. The world is, well, all the facts that are the case, right? Maybe. Maybe. So, but we don't know all the facts, obviously. There's a whole host of facts that we don't have access to. And there's, as I remember taking the class in grad school under Kwanvik, uh, there are even some facts that we don't want. Um, and uh, he gave a good example of that, which I will not mention. So uh, but it has something to do with your parents. Um, but there are some facts. There are some facts that we don't actually want access to anyway. But anyway, if you think about it, there's so what's the what's the temperature of the soil uh, three miles underneath my feet? The precise temperature. Well, no, nobody knows that. I mean, some people might have a good guess. But uh, how many pieces of Tupperware are there in Alabama? Well, nobody knows that. I mean, there's just a, there's tons of facts out there, and I'm just giving you a list of a couple different ones um, that are completely useless facts. Nobody nobody's even trying to learn them. Um, uh, and there's or there there are facts that we don't have access to. So the idea that the world is the set of facts, if that's the case, the world is the set of all the facts that are the case. Now that's of course talking about I'm I'm using terms a little bit loosely here, but uh, maybe see why in a minute. Nobody knows the world. Nobody has access to the to to the whole world, right? That's the that's part of the problem. Even if you take the collective knowledge of all human beings that are alive, our access to the number of facts in the world is extremely limited. Take all human all humanity through all throughout history, still very limited. Let me let me uh, offer a. Uh, a corresponding definition of, of world. Um, and that's going to be um, the way that we experience the world, what we have access to in the world um, or what we, what we think we have access to in the world. And so when, when, um, so when, when I'm talking about the world from, so we, we, we have the world in the idea of, of all that there is, but then we also have the world in the sense of all that I understand that there is. Um, so my experience of the world is kind of my world in a sense. Um, you know, I, I have done very limited travel. And so, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with foreign cultures, uh, at least, you know, in, in, in those cultures directly. Um, and so, um, my world, you know, so I, I struggle sometimes to, to really understand, um, the way that other people, um, the way other cultures work and, and being aware of that is, is, is part of my world too, because that makes me, um, open to under, to trying to learn and, um, not have the assumption that I, I know everything as I go in, in, into situations. Um, 
and and we we all have this subjective experience of the world that is in a sense part of the world and all that there is because you know if i see a color and i'm seeing it as blue it is objectively true that i'm seeing i'm having a subjective experience of it as blue even though travis could be having a subjective experience of it as green and that could be objectively true as well and so we 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 also have to bring our experience and the way that we understand the world and 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 all of that into this discussion as well it, it it's not just this some something that we can remove ourselves from because anytime we talk about the world and as all that there is there's an element of as we understand it um, that that has to be added on, which brings our subjective experience into the discussion. Right, right, and that's and I think I think one of the things that we we need to recognize, like what you're saying, because I think a lot of people might, if they're really following what you're saying, they're gonna, they're going to kind of draw back, and so no, there actually is the way it is actually blue, or it is actually green, right? And you're not talking about whether it's blue or green. You're talking about the objective fact that you are having the experience of it being. Blue, right. that says nothing about what it is. Right. Well, let me say nothing. It says it's good evidence that if you have the experience of it being blue, there's good evidence that it's blue. Right? Right. Or at least there's decent evidence, unless you clearly have had sight problems in the past. There's pretty good evidence that it's blue. Uh, it's only when I say it's green, referring to my subjective experience, that we start becoming uh, – aware that we may not have all the facts right right and that's sort of that's sort of what i like when, when people talk people use this language all the time like you, you know you travel somewhere and your world becomes bigger right right um i mean that's that's kind of imprecise language but it's not really i mean that's actually i mean you wouldn't say the world got bigger but your awareness of what is grew mm -hmm. and maybe some of your uncertainty about Maybe your certainty, I should say, about what you think about things have, has actually changed. So, for example, you might have, you might uh, be a social media warrior for Jesus, and you're telling everybody what's going on, and you have all of these, uh, all these awesome, you know, arguments, and you're constantly getting in battles with with, and you, you know, you've come to the conclusion that that atheists are a bunch of jerks and most of them are pretty ignorant and they just repeat the same thing over and over again. And then in the course of your life, you run into, uh, you come across a person that you start growing in friendship very quickly and eventually, and very soon you find out they're an atheist and yet they're kind, they're caring, they're open to discussion. And you, you recognize, wait a minute, my world is this... All, I thought I had them nailed down and now this person comes in. You know, most often, a lot of times what happens in that kind of situation is even if they've shown kindness and a level of wisdom and so on and so forth uh, and humility, a lot of times we deny what we see with our eyes to make them fit in with the categories that we had before. So we're loath to allow our world to grow a little bit. And this happens both ways. You know, when I teach, uh, when I teach at this state school that I teach at, I don't, I don't start off by telling everyone I'm a Christian because even though one of the classes I teach is philosophy of religion, which has a lot to do with apologetic arguments, both for and against 
uh, religion. I don't tell them because I don't want them to to cast. And if all they have to do is do a search on me, and they'll discover it. But most students aren't that interested. Um, it'll suddenly make the Christians in the classroom think, oh, this guy's just going to say nice things about Christianity, and it's going to make the atheists in the classroom ignore what I have to teach. And so my teaching will, on both hand, on both sides, my teaching can can uh, be hurt by their. Now, if they come up to me in personal life, I'll talk to you. Joel and I, we talk about teaching stuff all the time, and uh, he knows what I'm talking about. But um, I don't just let, you know, I don't put a Christian fish on my on my shirt when I walk into my first class and tell everyone that Jesus, you know, obviously if I started doing stuff like that, I'd probably lose my job. But, but that's not how I do it. And part of the reason is because people have, tend to have smaller views of the world and they tend to apply stuff to you instantly. And then everything you say is colored by that. Um, but so, I mean, th these are just some examples of, of, of kind of uh, colloquial, colloquial ways of talking about how our world is, can be small and it can grow larger and so on and so forth. That uh, actually does, it might be wiser and deeper than what we think it is when we speak like that. Um, and, and, and if I may insert one more thing is that our experience of the world, our sub subjective experience as we've been talking about of the world can, you know, and as Travis just mentioned, it colors the way that we see things. And, you know, given that tactical faith is in Alabama, I think, you know, talking about the iron bowl is a, is a, is a great way, you know, you, you get, I don't know the, what that is. The, it's, it's the <laughs> Auburn, Alabama. <laughs> yeah. So you get, you get the Alabama fans and the Auburn fans, you put them in the same room and watch a play, a controversial play. And the Alabama fans will see it one way. The Auburn fans will see it the other way. And you can watch the replay a hundred times and no one will change their mind on what mm -hmm. the reality of the play was. Right. And this, this, this showed up, I mean, this showed up in real, in real obvious way when I taught philosophy of religion this past semester. So philosophy of religion, you, uh, and I've, I've taught it several times, but philosophy of religion, you know, involves arguments for and against belief in God for and against, you know, so on and so forth. And at the end of the semester, you know, I sort of berated the class and said, anybody change their mind? We've just read some of the best scholars on these issues, making some of the best arguments. Who changed their mind? And surprisingly, actually, one student raised his hand and had gone from wow. being an atheist to a theist. And I stared at him in dumbfounded confusion. Um, <laughs> you just don't expect anybody to change their mind. Everyone thinks right. the arguments for their side are the good ones and the arguments for the other side have some sort of clear fatal flaw. And you might look at him and say, well, maybe they're just our, 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 our response is generally they're dumb. Just like an Alabama player, may, Alabama fan may look at an Auburn fan and say, you're an idiot. Clearly the call was this way. And the other and the Auburn player will turn to the Alabama player and say, no, you're an idiot. And you begin to realize when we look at these sorts of examples, we realize how much value affects the kind of world that we see. Right. Or how much value, if I can say it this way, how much value gives shape to the world that we perceive. Or maybe more fundamentally, how much value shapes what we perceive. Right. Gives us it, it is through value that we perceive the world. And uh, if that's the case, then I would argue that Christians and non-Christians have Christians and believers either in other religions or uh, unbelievers have different values that give shape to what we see in the world. Right. Yes. What those values are 
that leads us down an entirely new path and actually some discussion on what faith is and so on and so forth i think would be really important here faith is much more is a much richer idea than what people think but if this is the case then how then what are we doing when we do apologetics this goes back to the first thing, right? Are we trying to get them to embrace more facts or are we trying to get them to perceive another world or is this a false dilemma? Maybe a different way of phrasing the second one to see another world is, are we getting to try, are we trying to get them to uh, change their values? So, uh, you know, an example, yeah, I, I, I love sports. So I like to use the sports examples, but um, you know, I, I know people who, um, they marry into a family and the family they marry into is very passionate about a particular team. And, uh, the person before they married were, they were passionate about a different team, but suddenly because their spouse and their spouse's family is, is so passionate about this different team, suddenly they start cheering for this other team that they would have that they didn't cheer for before. And the, the team that they originally really, you know, really cared about just doesn't matter as much anymore. Just like if we could get you to move from Indiana to Alabama, you might start <laughs> giving up on that Purdue team that you like and turn to an Alabama fan. Never. <laughs> Boiler up. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> anyway, sorry. This is my last podcast. <laughs> By the way, he's fired. I know he's getting paid anyway, but. <laughs> oh, but so with that, with, you know, those people that change their, their sports allegiances, you know, you couldn't have talked to them six months before they met their spouse and, and told them, you know, tried to argue them into cheering for this other team. They, 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 that couldn't have been done. It took something to change what they valued to get them to change their, their sports allegiance. And, um, you know, and so what does that look like in, in things like, in something like apologetics? Well, maybe, maybe just a real simple, practical point to bring up here. Um, not quite related to apologetics, but somewhat, um, you know, there are many people who get, uh, caught up in apologetics, um, and, you know, have a lot, they, they learn a lot about it. And I've heard of people who stopped going to church because, they didn't, they quote, didn't have anything to learn from the pastor because they were smarter than the pastor or the sermons, pa pastor's sermons didn't apply to them and so on and so forth. And you realize that, that like what you said there, like a lot of times your values are determined in part by the community that you're surrounding yourself with. Right. Um, and what happens to your values when you never have a communal interaction with people who share the same set of values, but you go to, you go to work, you know, have probably most of your coworkers aren't believers or if they are, they don't, don't really take it that seriously. Uh, so, and eventually all the only kind of interaction you have are with maybe with other apologists, um, which there's something not entirely positive in that regard um, or with unbelievers. And eventually your values begin to, begin to shift. And we've seen this happen. We've, I've, we've seen people who were really big into apologetics eventually just like leave the faith. And mm -hmm. it's almost like they didn't start not believing. They stopped caring. Right. Their values shifted. They can make all the arguments, but their values shifted. 
And part of that, I think a big part of that, because a whole host of these people, they stopped going to church because they're too smart for church, which is missing the whole point, right? I have a whole host of facts and arguments to support these facts. Yes, but where are your values? If you don't join together in a community of believers and worship God together, you can have all the facts in the world, but your values are off. And this is why so many people, I think, who are heavy into the intellectual side of Christianity often leave the faith. And uh, I know it's, there might be some people here listening saying, uh, you guys are hypocrites, um, but I do go to church. But uh, I think the intellectual Same. side is of tremendous importance. Obviously. Right. Um, but the, communi- the, the, the community worship together really is important to help keep our values in the right place. Right. And, and, and the whole intellectual side is, is, you know, so returning, you know, connecting back to Kuhn for a minute, you know, when Kuhn tells us that when in normal science, the scientists are looking for puzzles to solve Mm -hmm. and the, and, and I've known people who have gotten into apologetics as though it were a puzzle to solve. Like what, what's, you know, how can we fine tune this to get an even better argument? Um, you know, making the the goal about you know get winning the argument about you know better arguments, but when really these goals are supposed to be, how does this help us love Jesus better? And if if our apologetics is not pushing us to love Jesus better, we might need to reevaluate how we're doing our apologetics. Yeah, and 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 just, and just our intellectual pursuit in general. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, my my PhD, you know, or my dissertation when I got done with it, I look back on it and I say, I think it actually made me a better person, which I think is a rarity for philosophy dissertations. Part of my dissertation was challenging me to try to to change my values to to experience the world like Jesus experiences the mm-hmm. world. And intellectual pursuits can are so easy to get caught up in for the sake of the pursuit itself, rather than where are we directing it? What what is the value in doing this? Is it about feeling super smart? Is it about winning arguments? Is it about you know coming up with the, with the next great apologetic idea, or or is it about helping us to love Jesus better? And I think when we love Jesus better, people want to know more about Jesus because we love people better. That's Yeah. So do do you think there's an element to apologetics where we're trying to, I'm going to, I'm going to say this in an ill-advised way, but y'all can do it. (laughs) We're trying to argue people into loving Jesus. And that sounds really negative. It sounds like I'm being critical just in the name of it. But do you think that's part of apologetics? I, I would say the, the arguing part isn't so might not be about loving Jesus, but the arguments can help kind of clear the way so that people can love Jesus. Okay. So yeah. So let, let me give you, let me give an example. Like, cause I think, I think we're on the same track. In fact, when I taught apologetics, this is what I said. Uh, and this might seem a little bit extreme, but I said the arguments are not the reasons people don't believe in God arguments are the excuses people make to not believe in God. And that sounds really sort of condescending, pedantic, whatever. 
but I really believe in many ways we are we are strong. We strongly desire a creator who loves us. We strongly desire. I think we were made for that. I mean, if Christianity is true, right, which is which is a, a key part of the you know a hypothetical statement. If Christianity is indeed true, then we were made for God. If we were made for God, then our fulfillment is found in God, which means ultimately our desires aim us toward God. They're all bent out of shape. They're all corrupted. But if we recognized our desires, we'd come to 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 love God. Uh, we'd, we'd desire to believe in God, too. Um, arguments, I think, in many ways are ways of avoiding having to believe in God. And so I said, all the, arg- all the apologetic arguments, they're ways of clearing clearing the path. They're, they're almost like, I'm going to, okay, you're talking about the problem of evil. And it probably, if you're really struggling with the problem of evil, it's probably because you yourself have struggled with tremendous evil and you can't possibly believe that there's a God who cares about you. That's really important. But when it comes down to it, you really do want a God that cares about you. Right. And so, so Let's deal with it. Let's deal with the, the problem of evil. Recognizing that the problem of evil, the argument itself, is not the root cause of your rejection. The problem of evil is a symptom that you that that comes up, or it's a or it's a sort of it's a way of blocking having to deal with with the real issue. And so you deal with it. Uh, you deal with it in a caring uh, way, with empathy and with love and with intellectual rigor. But when you're done with that, you you don't expect them to become a believer. You need to do it recognizing that they're, they're wanting to love God. Um, and so then you share somehow, like how can you argue in the problem of evil? How can you include in your argument the constant uh, invocation or evocation of a God who loves? Seems to me that that's, that's getting to the heart of apologetics is that value shift. Yeah, I mean, so you know, I've, I've had experience – you know, an experience where someone's like, you know, you, you obviously believe in God and, you know, you believe that God loves you. And, but how can you believe that in light of this evil thing? And and so it, it's, it's not that, you know, the person recognizes that there, I, I would argue that the person recognizes that you, that you are able to, you know, to, you you believe in God, that you believe in a creator that that loves you, and and that person is like, there's just no way I can can do that. But I'm going to ask this person how they can do that in light of this this evil. And so, you know, if we if we look back to you know the 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 verse that is typically used for apologetics in First Peter three, it's about giving an answer to the hope. But that means people are asking you about your hope. That means they see your hope. Exactly. <laughs> right. And if they see your hope, that what that means is something like, and and we, you and I did a short podcast. I don't think we've put up yet. Um, just just talking about faith and what faith is and how that's a much more, it's a much richer concept. Right. Than what we claim it is. Well, so is hope. Hope is a much richer concept. And this is, again, this is how I started off my apologetic class. We actually spent a couple of weeks just talking about the concept of hope. Um, what it, what the experience of being hopeful is like, which is a tremendous, it's much richer and much more difficult. And I found that all these people who believe firmly in Christianity, I mean, where I was teaching was a Bible college. These people were all planning on going into ministry. I mean, these people were studying to be pastors. And when I was done talking to them, I realized that a good portion of them, maybe the majority of them, were not experiencing hope. 
I, I say that to be careful. I wouldn't say they had no hope. Right. Because um, there's an objective sense in which they possessed a hope in Christ. Um, possessed is kind of a strong word, but um, they were given a hope in Christ. But uh, they themselves were not experiencing hope. In fact, they were in a kind of despair. Um, well, if we're going to share hope, to, to have hope is to live in a world that is not fallen into despair and yet it's honest about the world mm-hmm. and so people are seeing that we're it's almost like they're peering into a different world it's kind of like wizard of oz it's like someone's someone's in kansas in the grayscale black and white and they they get a they peer into into oz and they see the beauty and the color and they're like uh or maybe we're talking about oz and we're living we're living in a full color world and they see that we're living differently and that we're at wonder at the beauty and all the hues that are all around us. And they look at us and they go, what's wrong with you? How could you possibly think that about the world? Right. Um, uh, It's kind of like the different, I mean, maybe just an obvious good example too, is just people who are always looking at their phones live in a different world than the people who are looking at the scenery around them. Um, you go into a place where there's great beauty, a park or whatever, and you, you know, you got your teenager there just looking at memes and texting or whatever. Or, and, or, or even trying to experience the beauty through the phone rather than for themselves. Yeah. yeah. And so, so when a believer, when an unbeliever comes to you and says, you know, they're not saying what's the reason for the hope that you have, but how could you possibly believe in that given this? Um, what we need to recognize is there's a part in them or that they, that the kind of the fundamental element isn't that they don't have all the facts. That's not the issue. And so for us to look at them and say, you're just stupid because you don't have all the facts moron, right? Which is basically, that's those are the kind of responses I get when our, one of our posts go up on Facebook. Those are the responses we get from Christians because <laughs> all they've read is the title and they haven't read the article. Um, there's just like straight up quick condemnation. I mean, I don't know. Social media takes away your soul people um try your best to follow jesus even when you're on facebook and twitter amen crying out loud anyway um uh but but we're not just trying to get them to get more facts we're trying to present a set of values and how how do we um and maybe this is this is peeking ahead at uh maybe wittgenstein but what is the difference between arguing for facts or what I should say this. How do we present to people a different set of values? How do we, uh, in scare quotes, argue for a different set of values? That's a great question. And it's it, not it's... rhetorical. <laughs> well, I, I, so a lot, a lot of that comes down to, to finding ways to cross worlds i guess for lack of a better word uh, and 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 try to help people see that there's more than meets the eye for lack of a better word but it, it it's not just a matter of but it, that it's not just a matter of showing them more facts it's trying to get them to see the world differently um you know sometimes um you know, with, with my kids, I, 
I have to find new ways to explain things because they're not capable of, or they, they just haven't had an experience that they would need to understand it. And so I, I have to find a different way to explain it that a, a six-year-old would understand. And I'm not saying that we be condescending to people who were trying to quote unquote argue, you know, to them to change their values, but there's an element in which we rec- have to recognize that we're seeing the world in different ways and you can't just, you know, tell them, you know, get, tell them that there are these values and these are important. And because I hold these values, I do, I see this and this. Um, that's not, I mean, to them, that's going to sound like, you know, complete gibberish because they don't see the world that way. They don't. Well, it sounds like you're brainwashed. Yeah. Right. You're just, you're silly and you're, tra- you're, you're using opinion to try to prove God. So you're a fideist or something like that. Yeah, and so it's it's about it's about trying to get them to see things differently. Um, well, let and, me can I offer ahead. an example here too, and then I have one last, which is probably the big troubling question uh, that I think we need to. Maybe some people are asking, but maybe not. But they should. We all should be asking. And if you're not asking, it, it's because you're stupid. I'm just kidding. Um, sorry, I, I thought I was going to say something. But uh, so. Um, there are times when I, I don't know if you've ever done this in the mall. I remember doing this when I was a kid and I remember seeing other people do it, but there, are, so there are times when you're walking in a mall, have you ever been in a mall and there's a group of people looking up at the ceiling? Uh, I, for some reason I think of it as being at a mall, but anywhere where there's a crowd of place, you get a group of people looking up and like in a sense of wonder, you just automatically look up. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you get someone uh, and and th- I think that's in some sense, that's what we're trying to do when we're trying to share value is we're trying to look in awe at the wonder and beauty and goodness of God. And to, to have that show in our features, you might say, and, and to, to, to bleed through in our arguments so that our arguments are full of this love and wonder of God. Whereas when we're trying to argue, this happens all the time, particularly with kids, but sometimes when someone, someone tries to tell you how great something is, Oh man, you got to go see this thing. It's so great. It's so awesome. You need to go see it. Don't you? Sometimes we feel ourselves drawing back and saying, like, I'm not even going to, you know, it's like the people who don't like a song because they used to love a band, but then they become popular. Now they don't like them anymore. Like very hipster of them, but there's a, there's a hipster element to all of us where sometimes when when people use facts to try to get us to believe that something is great, we draw back. And if my values are opposed, it doesn't matter, right? If I'm a huge Auburn fan and you start talking about how Alabama is better and you start throwing facts at me, there's a part of me that actually may respond in disgust at what you're saying um, rather than being convinced. But when I see someone looking in wonder, I automatically look and I wonder what they're wondering at, right? Um, And so what does it mean to be staring in wonder at the goodness and the beauty and the glory of God. How does that show through? So I think that's, that's something for us just to reflect on in the way, like, but I, yeah. I think we can, we can name a few characteristics. First of all, the fruit of the spirit are going to be showing up in the way that you interact with people. Yeah. And you people on Facebook, there ain't no fruit of the spirit showing up. Okay. And, uh, you know, I'm not normally one to criticize, but Holy cow people. Um, and I don't even believe in Holy cows. So, uh, so, um, there's, uh, the, the other, the other side 
and this this is maybe a last question for just just to kind of end on if values do in fact determine the the facts that we filter out then how do we then it seems like whatever values you hold will determine the kind of world you ha- world you, you live in or might to calm to kind of mitigate how harsh that how strong that sounds that you live in a different world let's just say a different world view if the if the values determine the world view that you that you that you hold then how can we ever evaluate which worldview is better than another i think this connects closely to your dissertation work it um, does in some ways um so is there are there worldviews that are better than others or have we left everything free floating and it's not really connected to anything about the world well the you know we we've, men- we've mentioned this a couple times but when we talk about my world versus the world we're saying there's a way I experience the world and then there's a way the world really is. And the better ways of seeing the world are the ones that see the world as it really is. And, and we have to understand that value isn't something that's added to the world by our experience of the world, but value is in the world itself, which that's going, I mean, that, that is a, a difficult concept to really start to wrap your mind around because we are so used to treating the world as these facts and then my world might impose values on the facts, but the facts are, are what's in the world. And what I what I want to what I would want to steer the conversation to, I know we're getting kind of long here. Um, I would want to steer the conversation, you know, to talk about you no know, values are in the world and so we need to align our experience of the world with the way the world really is Mm -hmm. which there are i think human flourishing in in a rich sense of the term is a good indicator as to which ways of seeing the world are better than others um and human flourishing in 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 not a um, you know, how much money do you have, how famous you are kind of thing, yeah. or, or even how holy do you feel, but um, flourishing in that, are we, are we becoming like Jesus? Um, and, you know, do we demonstrate the fruit of the spirit? Do, do we, um, do we live a life that, that um, sees the dignity in, in, in humans and, and the value in the, in the world that God has given us. Yeah. Um, this is, this is an, a lot of like, that's all fantastic. And I know that your dissertation has a lot to do with human rights. Um, it, it perhaps, you know, when you look at the commands where we're not, we're not supposed to make a graven image, but then you recognize that God did in fact put his image in the world. Mm-hmm. And the perfect image of God is, of course, Jesus Christ. But we have little images of God running around all over the place, right? In each one of us. And so maybe one of the most important elements that that is involved in loving God and flourishing is to learn to love our neighbor. Now, I know that sounds really scriptural because it is. <laughs> But there's but there's a whole de- there's a whole element to this that a, a big part of flourishing means learning to love God and learning to love your neighbor. Which in the story of the Good Samaritan, loving your neighbor was in this case 
someone who had been abused and mistreated and treated like treated like garbage helped the very kind of person who would have treated him that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that we're not talking about treating your neighbor who you get along with, but treating even the person who may have just the day before mistreated you, which if you look at where the, the Samaritan was, where he was going, um, it's very possible that he had just, he had just experienced mistreatment by Jews. Right. And yet he stops and helps one who, who had been hurt when, and, uh, why? Because the image of God is manifest in the in the person next to you, no matter how much of a scuzz bag or jerk or other political party or whatever <laughs> they might be. Um, uh, that's what it means to flourish. That's what it means to love God and worship God. And so maybe one of the biggest I mean, this this is a simple solution, but one of the one of the most important things in apologetics is loving the person you're talking to. One of the evidences that your that your worldview is is better is that it you're growing in your love of the person next to you. Yes. Um, now, what we've done here, maybe I need to do a quick summary because this is supposed to be about Kuhn. What we've done is we've talked about because the thing that's interesting about Kuhn is that he's uh, he has taken this thing that we're talking about, what we've just said, and he said, no, actually, that's how science is too. So one of the one what we would consider the hard fact element of science is in fact influenced by the values of those who are participating in the science. Mm-hmm. That's true, of course, with the way that we relate to the people around us and the way we think about everything from religion and so on and so forth. And the fact that values are involved in the way that we perceive the world with regard to religion, with regard to social relationships and so on and so forth is not a negative element. It's actually that value element is also at the heart of what science is about. Right. Um, and so a lot of what Kuhn does is he's he eases up that obsession, almost worship of science, which I would like to call scientism, which I, it's not original to me, but other people have called it that, that scientistic obsession that science is the end-all, be-all of all facts. But science itself is grounded in certain values those values then manifest in the conclusions that science brings out as you would expect them to. Um, maybe the values of our, maybe our values are off in, uh, in a lot of the ways that we pursue these questions. What do Christians need to do in their relationship to the world in dealing with, uh, in trying to share Christ? Well, we need to remember how important the value element is. Um, if my value, if the value that shows up in my discussion with an unbeliever, it's clear that my primary value is winning the argument and beating you, then I am manifesting a God and a worldview of power over, of control, of abuse, of possession, not yeah. one in, not one of servanthood, of self-sacrifice, of Christ crucified, right. which means they may believe, they may agree with my argument. I may eventually beat them into submission, but they will never love God. Um, they will never, they might have some knowledge, but they may never obtain faith. Or, well, or if they do, it's not going to be because of me. Yeah. It's because God got around me. <laughs> God uh, used me despite what I was doing. Those are some things to reflect on. Uh, we will obviously be developing these ideas more as we move on. Uh, we're going to get into some other thinkers. 
and uh, uh, thank you for joining us. I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Have a good one.